Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. I always have to check the calendar because I never know what day it is or, or what the date is. Our guest today is Allison Treasel, a criminal defense attorney, a friend of the show, a personal friend of mine. Allison, I'm always so excited when you're on. It, you know what? It's always so wonderful to me to be on a show with you because I love you, but also... You cover great cases and we're able to do a deep dive into them, which is always so important because most people just hear the headline and they never understand really what was behind it. So um, what a service you do to people. Oh, well, I think our guests are the ones who really are amazing because you explain everything to us, whether the person's background is as a judge, prosecutor, defense attorney, uh, law professor, we get such great analysis and explanation of the law because there is justice which we all seek and then justice which is available or or realistic within the parameters of the justice system and the two of those don't always meet right and uh and these two cases i mean these two cases are outrageous i i believe this is about Two cases here, the the perpetrators in these cases are men, men who have gotten away with it, gotten away with it. For one of them, it is justice long denied. And for the other one, no justice at all. No, 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 no. Okay, so here are the cases we're working on this week. A Florida woman who went missing in September has been found dead in a canal in Florida, and police have now arrested the suspect in her murder. But get this, the woman and the man, the man who was ultimately charged with killing her, they were actually pulled over by police on a traffic stop before she was murdered. The possibility of intervention was there, Allison. A missed opportunity. Police said that they didn't notice anything weird, but there had to have been a reason they pulled him over. And wait, and this man... The man who ultimately gets charged with her murder, a convicted killer who was out on parole. Uh, I'll tell you this, Anna. I'll tell you this. I'm not going to give the police a pass this time because they were together and they got pulled over. But I'm so much more angry at a system that allows someone. When he went to prison 
and it was a 40 year sentence and he only served 27 of those 40 years. He had actually committed a heinous offense before then for which he could have gotten life in prison. So um, so for this family, for this family, this was preventable. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to get into the details of that case because it is outrageous and it has me furious. But first, another case that really undoes me, boggles the mind. Millionaire real estate heir from New York, Robert Durst. You probably all have heard the name. If you haven't, we're going to give you a summary here. He has been convicted of murder by a jury in Los Angeles and sentenced to life in prison, but... He's currently in a Los Angeles hospital fighting for his life. He has COVID and he is on a ventilator. I call this case when justice meets karma. This guy has gotten away with so much Allison in his life because he is privileged, because his family is powerful and has a lot of money. It's extraordinary what he's gotten away with. So I just going to give everyone a little bit of a headline here and then we can get into it. So many of you have probably heard of Robert Durst, okay, because he's bizarre. All of his actions are very weird. He is the heir to this big real estate empire from New York, and he has been suspected or somehow connected to three deaths or murders. He was featured in that HBO documentary, which is just amazing. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it and watch it several times. It's called The Jinx. And in this documentary, the producers actually uncovered so much evidence that led to the murder charges being filed here in Los Angeles. Okay. So that says a lot about the justice system. I mean, I think what they've done is extraordinary, but really it takes documentary producers to kind of like light a fire under prosecutors. <laughs> they found crucial evidence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but once once the prosecutors, and I have to say this about John Lewin because he, he was the prosecutor in this case and he is the head of the cold case unit in LA County and I actually had a very serious case with him. Once he got a hold of this case though, Anna, yes, there was no you're right. stopping him. There was no stopping him. Yeah, so Durst, who is now 78 years old, has finally been convicted of murder. On September 17th, just after seven hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder for killing his best friend, who was a writer and a screenwriter, Susan Berman. She was murdered in December of 2000, right before Christmas. And Robert Durst and Susan Berman had been friends since they went to graduate school at UCLA. Now, prosecutors said that it was Durst who shot her in the back of the head to keep her from revealing secrets that she may have had about his possible connection to the disappearance of his wife, Kathy, back in 1982. And what is interesting about the court case in Los Angeles is that prosecutors actually got the permission from the judge, and it was not easy, to bring in the two previous cases that Durst is associated with in order to paint a total picture as to the motivation as to why Robert Durst would want his best friend dead. Well, they, you know, the thing is, it was very, very interconnected. So for the most part, for certainly for the the murder in Galveston, Texas, where he dismembered the person, 
Um, well, bef- before you talk, but because what? there was an acquittal, that wouldn't come in, right? Because there was an acquittal, and then the other case, it's an investigation. So, if it was a conviction and he's testifying, makes sense that it comes in. But what? And we will continue with the narrative. But it is so important to focus that the prosecutors argued that the reason he killed Susan, the motivation behind the murder, because jurors want to know why did this happen, mm-hmm. was because. Susan Berman knew too much and they had just reopened the investigation in New York. So I'm not going to take us on a tangent yet, but I, I it's so important, right? It's so important to understand that Susan Berman's death was directly related to the cover up of Kathy Durst. Correct. Correct. And uh, when you mentioned the case in Galveston, because the the Robert Durst case is really hard to follow. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, Kathy Durst. So Kathy and Robert Durst are married. He's obviously very, very wealthy. She's attending medical school in New York, and she's about nine years younger than he is. And they have a penthouse in Manhattan, and they have a country home, a cottage on a lake in Westchester County, New York. So on the day of her disappearance, allegedly, and this is all based on what Robert Durst said, he said that he drove his wife to the train station in Westchester. She was going to take the train into the city, go to their fancy New York apartment, and then, you know, she was going to go to medical school because they split their time. Right. And let me let me add a little color to that. Everybody who was interviewed at the time said that this was not a perfect marriage that Robert Durst was controlling and that they had actually attended uh, a holiday party immediately prior and they were fighting. And so you start with, this was not a picture perfect marriage. She felt controlled. Other people witnessed um, these verbal altercations. And so when someone goes missing and you know, when there's smoke, Who is the most likely suspect? Absolutely. We always look at the last person to have seen the person alive and also close relatives relationships, usually the significant other. What's interesting here, though, is Robert Durst is the one who reported her missing to the NYPD, but it took several days for him to report her missing. Right. In that time, in that time when he walks into and it's interesting, he didn't go to the Westchester police department, the state, the state troopers, right? He went to the NYPD. Where is his family most powerful? Manhattan. Well, and also I've thought about this so many times over the years, Anna. Also, if the body is out in Westchester and you're reporting it in New York set in New York city, you're already leading the police on a wild goose chase. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But the thing is no one really knew that at the time because she had apparently, Kathy had apparently already contacted an attorney about a divorce that the divorce attorney allegedly had had contact with Robert Durst already about a settlement. So no, things were not going well, but that's not the picture that he presented to the police. He initially told the police their marriage was fine and that they would go for days without seeing each other because they had these, you know, these two homes where they split their time. Here's where it gets kind of weird. They the fancy apartment building where they lived, there was a doorman 
And there are all these press reports all of a sudden about how the doorman took her upstairs to the penthouse. So the doorman saw Kathy alive. Then there were all these reports about how Kathy had called in sick to med school, which is like a weird thing to do. She called, she called, I'm doing air quotes for those of you who are listening. She called the dean and called in sick. All these stories start to be generated in the New York press and, and they're loving it because, you know, millionaire's wife goes missing, all this drama, they make her out to be a cokehead, all these things. They're, they're just saying horrible things about her and stories are being planted. All right. A, who planted, but wait, before you go, who planted the stories? Susan Berman. Okay, so it has, uh, most people believe, most law enforcement believe, that it was actually Susan who called the school. Right. Who, uh, pretending to be Kathy, mm-hmm. and said, I won't be able to make it. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing with the doorman, and, and this is actually so uh, important as as someone who's a defense attorney, as someone who's been in the court system, um, there's two things, you know, eyewitness identification is 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 not always that reliable. But, but here, remember we have one of the wealthiest families in the country. And these people can buy anything they want. And I don't know exactly if this happened, but I would have taken the the doorman story um, and, and really thoroughly analyzed it because it's very possible that Robert Durst got to the doorman, right? I mean, that's something that we all have to consider. Well, I believe ultimately when the case was reopened, so Kathy Durst has never been found. Her body's never been found. And after, you know, 1982, this is in the press for a while and then it goes away. And then at the end of the year 2000, around Christmas time, a little before that, all of a sudden this case is about to be reopened, but not by the NYPD, but by the Westchester state investigators who are the state troopers who are based in Westchester. Different jurisdiction. This is where she was allegedly dropped off by her husband. The reason this is important is I believe as the investigation continued, it was determined that the doorman never did see Kathy come home, never saw Kathy come home. Right, right. But but I think at the time of the investigation, um, the, there should have been more scrutiny. Oh, yes. The door, there should have been more scrutiny period all the way around. Right, right. But the doorman specifically, who was essentially Robert Durst's alibi, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Robert Durst's alibi, um, was not highly scrutinized. And, and I think that was a major mistake at the time. Because it certainly delayed the investigation. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. It just went away. I mean, Kathy's family never, never gave up. But, you know, Robert Durst was like, I don't know where she is. She just left. And then that story completely went away until the as as the narrative goes, there was an informant who told one of the state troopers in Westchester that he believed that there was information that Robert Durst had allegedly killed his wife, Kathy, in the Westchester house, had dismembered her and thrown her in the lake. So. Now, everything is changing, and they're going to reopen this case. 
And here's where Susan Berman comes in. Susan Berman here in Los Angeles who gets murdered. So Susan Berman has always been Robert's best friend, but she's having some financial troubles. And according to her friends who testified at this case in LA, they said that she had told them that she knew what really had happened, what Robert's involvement was in his wife's disappearance, that she had made the call to the dean pretending to be the wife, and that she had planted all these fake stories in the New York press to save her best friend, Robert. So Robert writes her checks. Kathy gets, not Kathy, excuse me, Susan Berman here in Los Angeles gets $50,000 from Robert Durst, who's apparently notoriously so cheap that every like cab driver knows who he is because he doesn't, you know, tip or anything. And she tells him that she's been contacted by the authorities because they are reopening the investigation. And they believe that she has information about his wife's disappearance. And then she's murdered. She's murdered. Um, and what is unbelievable, I mean, this woman had been loyal to him. Mm-hmm. Had been his best friend, loyal to him for decades, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but Robert Durst didn't see it that way. Um, he did was not taking any chances that he would be found out. So he always maintained he was never in Los Angeles. He was never in Los Angeles. He had nothing to do with it. And the, the weird thing about her murder was she was shot in the back of the head. She had been dead anywhere between one or two days before her body was found. Her dogs had been running the neighborhood for two days. The neighbors finally called on Christmas Eve. And there's your dog who's in the background wa- <laughs> wagging his. No, he can stay. He's so cute. Hey. We're talking about dogs. He wants okay, to be right, part right, of the okay, podcast. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Yep, yep, yep. Right. So they they call police. Police come in. They find her dead. And, the you know, so now they have a murder investigation. Then this bizarre note that is always referred to as the anonymous cadaver note is received by the Beverly Hills Police. But this is not the jurisdiction of the Beverly Hills Police. It is the jurisdiction of the LAPD. And the note simply says that there is a cadaver at this address, alerting the police that there's a cadaver. And and the address is spelled improperly, incorrectly. So Beverly is spelled with an extra E at the end instead of L-Y. Right. So the person sends it to the wrong police department and spells it wrong. Right. I mean, and that obviously becomes pivotal information. I mean, that becomes um, one of the grounds on which he was convicted. Right. Yes. But and that's the whole case turn there. But what's incredible is that Robert Durst, for as eccentric and outrageous, um, he, you know, he's a pretty small man. You know, he's not really a force. Um, was so sneaky. He was so deceptive that he had a story or an explanation for everything. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't there and he did a really good job for years covering his tracks. So um, he was always sort of ahead of the police department, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he had figured out a way to get here without anybody knowing for a very long time. Right. He flew in and out of San Francisco because he has a house in Northern California. He allegedly 
There's no proof. This is this is why I find the conviction for his best friend Susan Berman so fascinating because there was really no forensic evidence. The right. note and this and the writing on the note is the closest they got to it, but there was no DNA, no fingerprints on that note. His DNA, any forensic ev- evidence, the murder weapon never found. He was never physically placed in Los Angeles ever. No witnesses, nothing. Correct. So the theory the prosecutors have is that he stealthily drove from the San Francisco area to L.A., killed her and drove back up and then flew back. So all they had were airline receipts for flying in and out of San Francisco That's around right. the time of her death. That's right. I mean, so when you talk about premeditated, right, I mean, when you talk about premeditated, there mm-hmm. we are. But what I also have found so fascinating through just, you know, all of these years um, his arrogance is what finally got him. I mean, it really yes. is what got him because he, his lawyers begged him not to do the jinx, begged him not to do it. And ultimately- But it was his idea. It was his idea. He contacted the makers of a film who had made, you know, this fictitious film based loosely on, on his life, and, you know, and his story. And, he, and Robert Durst himself contacts the filmmakers and says, you know what? People have always wanted to interview me, and I've never said yes. But I would like you to interview me. And that's how the jinx started. Right. But but the, what, the, what the listeners have got to know is he, he literally um, dug his own grave. Yes. When he walks into the bathroom that day. So, okay. Let, let, yes. Because he makes what appears to be a confession. The microphone is on, he's in the bathroom. So this ties into the note. So for those of you who don't know, like we've said, that note that was sent to the police department said the cadaver and Beverly was spelled wrong. Okay. The producers of the jinx right before Robert Durst makes this alleged confession had had gotten copies of an, a letter that he had sent to Susan Berman right? Okay. Susan's long gone. Everybody's dead already. And they match the envelope that he wrote to Susan Berman, misspelled Beverly in exactly the same way as in the cadaver note. Same writing. Same writing. Same same handwriting. Same handwriting. Misspells it exactly the same way. Shows it to Robert Durst and, and says, is this you? And he's like, no, it's not me. But whoever wrote that probably is the killer. Oh, hello. Yes. Yes. And okay, so that that's very important because then he goes into the bathroom and he says, you know, of course I did it. I did it. I killed them all. I killed them all. Of course, I killed them all. And so now you're left thinking with like, Jesus Christ, did he kill everybody? And after the airing of the jinx, the release of the jinx, L.A. prosecutors say, that's it. (laughs) We're going after him because we actually have him. And in the trial in Los Angeles, the jury actually had to not only watch all of the jinx, but they also listened to the unedited interviews of Robert Durst incriminating himself. So this is where it's important to understand the legal analysis behind it, okay? Because his lawyers... Um, said two things. They said the recording shouldn't come in because it's not a fair representation of what actually happened. So the jury, the judge said, okay, then they'll listen to it all. They'll listen to that recording. So if it was taken out of context in the show, 
We want the jury to hear all of it, which is normally what happens. You don't get to hear an edited version of a phone call or a statement. You listen to the entire thing. But what also was a very interesting maneuver that ultimately failed the defense is this idea of a consensual recording, okay? In the state of California, Anna, you cannot record me without my consent. You cannot do it. However, this was not law enforcement. So, so we take the whole level of you have certain protections um, when it comes to law enforcement about recordings and Miranda and all of that stuff. So there's no issue on a ordinary citizen or in this case, a filmmaker asking those questions because as a you don't have to Mirandize somebody before they speak, right? I mean, I can say to you, Anna, did you kill the person? And you said, yeah, Allison, I did. Well, that comes in, right? It comes in. Mm-hmm. If I was a police officer, maybe I had to explain your rights against self-incrimination, but not as a friend, you don't have that right. So the level of it being a um, a consensual recording, um, when he goes into the bathroom, he knows he's wearing a microphone. He knows he's being recorded. He knows that this show is happening. So any effort they made to throw that out, the judge said, your client voluntarily consented to this. And as you said, he said he wanted it. This was his idea. Yes. So don't come back now and say you don't like portions of it. It doesn't work that way. Well, his attorneys tried constantly to get a mistrial because of his failing health. And as we said, Robert Durst is currently in a hospital right now on a ventilator. And honestly, I'm not sure if he's going to make it. He is a stubborn son of a bitch. So if anyone is going to survive, it's going to be this man. (laughs) Remember before, I don't know if, if the listeners have followed it that closely, but after the jinx, the prosecutor flies to New Orleans because he's held in custody because when they actually get the warrant and go to execute the warrant, he's got weapons galore. He's got disguises. He has cash. And so he actually gets charged and gets sentenced in Louisiana to serve time on the weapons charge before they'll bring him to L.A. Unbelievable what this man has gotten away with. So let's get back to the letter, right? Because this is very important. Remember, there's been no forensic evidence for Kathy Berman's murder case. So, and remember, he has denied the entire time he was in LA and he has denied on camera and constantly to prosecutors. In fact, in in New Orleans, when the LA prosecutor flew out there again, they showed him the letter. He denies it, denies, denies, denies. Finally, we're getting ready to to go to trial. And remember, this case, his murder case here in L.A., was delayed for something like, I don't know, 14 months because of COVID. It started and then it stopped and then it started again. So this is like the longest trial ever. So something happens where the defense completely changes their story. This to me is the most incredible thing. All of a sudden, the defense comes up with this with this out of the playbook. They say, "You know what? Robert Durst was in the was in the apartment with Susan Berman. And he he found her and, and wrote, wrote the note. And yes, and he and now we say he wrote the note. You know why he wrote the note? Because he wanted to make sure that someone found her body because that's his best friend, and he didn't want anything more, you know, anything worse to happen to poor Kathy. I mean, to right. Susan. So when she he gets there. She's already dead. That's his new story. 
Right. And that he wrote the letter because he tried to call the police from a phone booth. Okay. Can you believe this? Says he tried to call, but they, the 911 operator asked for his name. He didn't want to give it. Then he says, and then he realized they could recognize my voice. Please. He's such a liar. So that's why he writes the letter to the police. So he actually expects a jury in Los Angeles to believe after all these years of lying that he actually did see her body and rather than calling the police, writes the stupid cadaver letter. Really? So I have two thoughts. One is this. While it shocks a lot of people what what a defense uh, people will put up. So you can say anything you want as the reason for the defense, right? So he could have said, look, a ghost came in Mm -hmm. and the ghost did the murder. That would be more probable than this. (laughs) But you can, I mean, so whatever you've said prior to that, if you've denied it, you've denied it, I was denied I was there, all bets are off when you get to trial because those were just merely negotiations, right? Except for his statement that he gave that comes in, things, portions of that come in. And what was amazing is, and I want to get back to John Lewin. So John Lewin is the cold case, is the head of the cold case unit in Los Angeles. I actually had a case with him. My client was accused of um, beating her husband to death with a coffee mug. Um, And they brought in John Lewin after many, many months where we kept saying she didn't do it. She did not do it. She's innocent of these charges. And John gave it such a thorough look-see. I mean, went through every detail and ultimately dismissed the case. He has a lot of power because they know that he will stop at nothing if he believes someone is guilty to get, to make sure that they're convicted, okay? So what he did with Durst on the witness stand, and Durst was on the witness stand, I think, for nine days. I, I'm pretty sure that that was, it's a, a very long time. He Durst is denying that he did the murder. He's denying it, he's denying it. And John Lewin said to him, sir, hypothetically, if you did it, you would sit up here and lie about it, wouldn't you? And Durst said, yes, I would. So he was able to say to the jury, he told you, he told you that even if he did it, he'd lie to you. Right. I mean, that was that was a very powerful moment because it made clear to the jury, which is who you are trying to convince Do not believe anything this man says. You can't. You really can't. It's very hard to believe anything. And um, also, anyone who may have watched it or will see clips of it, again, very, very frail. Uh, Some people wondered whether he was pretending to be more frail than he was, but he had hearing aids. He had an iPad next to him. So all the questions that were actually asked of him verbally came up on the iPad so he could read it. His testimony really was very slow going because his voice is weak and he speaks very slowly, very differently than the man you will see in previous in the previous trial or even in the jinx. A very, very different man, very ill. So now I want to talk a little bit about Morris Black. So we have the case here in Los Angeles, right? This is Susan Berman, his best friend. So Morris Black in Galveston, Texas, how does this millionaire who's so privileged end up, you know, in renting a little apartment in Galveston, Texas. Apparently, a woman. 
pretending to be a woman. Yes, pretending to be a mute woman unable to speak because, as he said, admitted, well, people would hear I have a deep voice, so I couldn't pull it off. So he just had a wig, and he pretended to be a woman. He went under the name of Dorothy Siner. Dorothy Siner is a woman that he went to high school with. Um, and he, he pretends to be this woman and rents this apartment and ultimately befriends the nosy neighbor next door, Morris Black. They're friends for a while, and ultimately Morris Black realizes this is a man, figures out who he is, the whole bit. Morris is asking for money. Morris, Morris is found dead, okay? Morris's body is chopped up, put in trash bags, and put into the Galveston Bay. And they're dis- the pieces are discovered, you know, in- all over the bay. And now police are trying to figure out in Galveston, Texas, like who killed Morris Black and why? All they know is that there was a woman who lived across the hall and that there are blood stains that go from Morris's apartment to this woman's apartment. They go into that apartment. It doesn't look like a woman lives there. It doesn't have like things that women would have, but they do find like blood stains. <laughs> And all this other stuff. But for the longest time, they don't know that they're actually looking for a man. And they don't know that they're looking for a millionaire named Robert Durst. Right. Right. But by the way, that's that's again, that goes back to his theme of his many disguises and the cover ups and the lengths he goes not to be detected. Yeah. So just to make sure that everyone's following along with this, the wife disappears in 1982 Susan Berman, best friend, dies in December of 2000. She's murdered. Morris Black, the nosy neighbor next door in Texas, 2001, his body's found. Okay, so understand he's under a lot of stress at this time period. The reason he's run away to Galveston is because they're opening up his wife's disappearance. Susan Berman is dead. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff happening around this man. Okay, ultimately, the cops figure out Robert Durst is the guy. And so, you know, they figure it out and he's got so much incriminating evidence. He's got like Morris Black's ID and all this other stuff in the car when he's finally stopped (laughs) in Texas. And and by the way, there's a dismembered body. Yes. Floating in a bay and and a, a, a literal blood trail directly to him. Yes. To his apartment. Absolutely. Right. Okay, so you would think, geez. No wonder the the cops in Texas arrest Robert Durst, who's pretending to be a woman, right? No wonder they arrest him. So they arrest him. He makes bail and he doesn't show up. He jumps bail. Okay. The millionaire is now on the run and it's a national story. Millionaire on the run. All right. This to me is the most unbelievable part of this story. It's He's, actually my favorite. It's actually, isn't it? Yeah, it's my favorite too. Oh, Allison, of course it's your favorite. It, I mean, it's amazing. It is. <laughs> I, I know, and I feel sick. beyond, beyond. All right. <laughs> By the way, when you say millionaire, that is such a. I mean, he. This man is worth a hundred million dollars. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, he's really rich, not just a million dollar house. He is like crazy rich. I mean, even after he's paid every lawyer in every state. Yes. He's literally worth $100 million. Yes. Okay. So in Pennsylvania, all of a sudden, there is a situation at a supermarket in Pennsylvania. 
a man has stolen like a chicken salad sandwich and he's caught on surveillance. He's detained by security guards. The police show up. It's freaking Robert Durst. He has stolen a sandwich from a supermarket. Go ahead. May, may I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he has he has $37,000 on him. <laughs> In the car, on him, right. He so has a sandwich. <laughs> is $3.70 probably, and he has $37,000 on him. I know, he could have bought the entire supermarket, <laughs> the contents of the supermarket, but he steals a stupid sandwich. And he has now shaved his head, and he has shaved his eyebrows, which doesn't make any sense, the whole eyebrow thing. And when they, the cops realize that they have millionaire heir Robert Durst wanted for a murder in Texas and that his, his wife's disappearance and that his best friend in LA is dead. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you it's imagine huge. the beat cop that gets that call and he's like, oh God, are you kidding me? A shoplifting, this old right. man, like this guy is probably hungry and you know, he's probably down on his luck and I really have to, I'm going to waste my day with paperwork. Oh, oh my gosh, look who this is. Oh, by the way, he's also has two guns in his car. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's always had guns. They've always been in every, practically every vehicle he's been pulled in, pu pulled over in, he's had guns. Okay, yeah. so he gets extradited back to Galveston, Texas, and he's going to stand trial in Texas. Now, this is the amazing part of this case. So he actually takes the stand in his own defense, kind of like he did here in L.A., but here's the defense, and it's the same attorney, same attorney, Dick DeGarren, who's a big shot Texas attorney. Okay, but wait, we got to stop. We got to stop. Why? Dick DeGarren, who is a very good lawyer, okay, he's a very good lawyer, mm -hmm. he's a big shot attorney in Texas. But not so, L.A. <laughs> so the cowboy hat, the cowboy boots. Um, that makes a big splash in Texas, mm -hmm. but not so much in L.A. Not the 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 tactics and the way he presents himself to a Texas jury. It doesn't translate well to a, to a, a Los Angeles jury. I mean, no, 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 it does. No, not. it does not. And, you know, just because, you know, unless you have defended O.J. in Los Angeles or you've defended Michael Jackson, honestly, in an L.A. courtroom, you're nobody because that's just we have unbelievable cases here in L.A. and it's a different way. Right. And, and also, um, you know, I, I want to say and I, and I don't think it's true, by the way, I just don't think it's true. The case in Texas against Robert Durst was much stronger. Yes. So, you know, I want to say, oh, well, you know, he didn't have the evidence that he didn't have the defense that he had in Texas here. But the evidence in Texas, Anna, was overwhelming. Yes. Overwhelming. overwhelming. Absolutely. Absolutely overwhelming. And Ooh. then. Yeah. And then. So, OK. So the thing is. Dick DeGarren, who's this big shot attorney from Texas, they he decides with his team that this is going to be their defense. Robert Durst is going to say, well, his death was an accident. I didn't mean to kill Morris Black. He came at me. I shot him only in self-defense. The gun went off. 
So that was an accident. But yes, I dismembered his body because what else was I going to do? Look at me. I'm a millionaire heir on the run, suspected in my wife's disappearance. I it, This was going to look bad. So I had to chop up the body and get rid of the evidence and run. This was the defense and the jury bought it. Lapped it up. Oh, by the way, please understand he did get convicted of one thing. What? Destroying body parts. Okay. Um, no, I mean, what's amazing to me is, is you know, Texas is, is not a place where you necessarily want to commit a crime. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a, the, the laws are tough there. The sentences are tough there. But whatever mojo his attorney had cast some spell over that jury because they lapped it up. They truly believed that Robert Durst had to kill him in an act of self-defense and that the self-defense argument fits squarely into the Texas law definition of self-defense, which I really don't even think it did. But it's amazing to me. It really is. It's amazing to me that in a high profile trial where someone admits to chopping up a body, there could be an acquittal. It's just shocking. It is shocking. I mean, you can even see Robert Durst. He keeps asking his attorneys, did he? Did they say not guilty? Yeah. And if you watch any of the trial video, you will see that it's a different Robert Durst. He is the eccentric New Yorker who is kind of funny and entertaining. And you can yes. hear the jury laughing. Yeah. And, you know, when the prosecution is saying, so you're saying, Mr. Durst, that you had the gun like this and the, and he's like, well, not exactly like that. He has the jury buying it. Okay, the jury buys his story. He had no choice but to chop up the body. And so he's found not guilty, really, of murder. He's found not guilty of murder, which is shocking. So then, and it's after that, when he feels so confident that he decides that he will sit down to do the interview with the jinx, which then leads to the case here in Los Angeles. It's all his own freaking doing. Right, and and so that's what sort of leads us full circle here, is that his arrogance... Yes. His narcissism, his his desire to he he believed that he had beat the system. He had beat the system and he wanted the world to know that he's smarter than everybody else. Yep. And that is why he is in the inmate section of the county hospital on a ventilator. Um, and, and by the way, I actually don't think it's an act. I actually think that he is that sick. You know, I follow. I think so, too. Yeah, he is very ill without question. I mean, he looks it. He looks dreadful. Yeah. The other thing that's looming now is so, of course, there is justice for Susan Berman, for her friends and her family. But Kathy Durst in New York, her family, her family's asking, when will there be justice for Kathy McCormick Dutt? Right. This is what they're asking. So the New York Daily News has um, published a report saying that the Westchester D.A. has convened a grand jury, which, of course, is always secret, has convened a grand jury. And it's very possible that they will either bring forth charges against Robert Durst or at the very least is reopening the case. Right. And I want to explain that to people because um Many years ago, I was involved in a uh, capital death penalty case in Los Angeles, and the man was convicted and he got the death penalty. 
he had been accused of a murder in Las Vegas as well. And he was extradited and put on trial in Las Vegas. And the question is always, well, why are you wasting the taxpayers' money? He's already been sentenced. And why are we doing this again? Mm-hmm. Here's, there's two reasons why. Number one, like that family in Nevada, in Las Vegas, Kathy Durst's family deserves justice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he's never been held accountable for her death. That's number one. Yep. Number two is there's always a chance that a murder conviction can be overturned on appeal. So sure. in California, you have an absolute, you have a, you have a right to an appeal. If that murder conviction is overturned for whatever reason, germ misconduct, you know, certain evidence was admitted and it shouldn't have been, whatever that is. And this person then gets out or is retried and gets acquitted or whatever that is. There's no guarantee that they're spending the rest of their life in prison for that case. So a lot of people will say, look, it's it's a lot of money and this man's about to die. And I mean, if I'm New York, I'd probably wait for him to recover or not, of course. I mean, you know, for him to recover or not. But you can understand why her family says, no, we don't care that there's been a conviction in Los Angeles. We deserve justice for our our daughter, our sister, our the and and no matter what happened in Los Angeles, that wasn't our case. Mm-hmm. So, so that is why, and it, and, it, and for listeners to hear it, because these cases and to extradite him, and he's he's somebody that costs a lot of money to take care of in yeah. prison. I mean, a lot of money, right? Um, but why would you spend the money? And the answer is because if it was your family member, would you feel that there was justice served if if the person was never tried for their murder? And the answer is no way. And one more thing, Allison, the fact that Robert Durst has so many times, at least in two cases now, at the very last minute, changed his story and given, actually admitted to things. What if they charge him in Westchester and he pulls another stunt again and reveals where Kathy's body is? Can you imagine? I mean, that's what I'd be hanging on. That's what I'd be waiting for. Where is Kathy? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I am sure that they have considered, and that's such a great point that you raised. I'm sure that they have considered and spoken to the family about, hey, if he tells you where the body is, what do you think about running the, and and he pleads and just running the time concurrently or giving him 10 years, you know, something. But I don't think, I honestly, on his deathbed, I don't think this man will ever tell where uh, where Kathy Durst was buried or if he did it ever. I don't know. I think he's still got a couple of plays in him if they can get him well, well enough, you know, and get him off the ventilator, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know what? I want him to go back to prison and I want him to do his sentence. Yep. Sure. I don't want him to get off in any way. Well, I mean, a oh. lot of people feel that way. I mean, a lot of people feel that until you hear that word guilty and you hear them sentence, there really is no justice for if, if they if they die in custody, if they you you haven't gotten um, you haven't you, you haven't felt as though there's some closure. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think this is very interesting. I think if he survives, there could be a couple of surprise moves left in Robert Durst, and hopefully it will be revealing about what happened to Kathy. Yeah. Allison, this next story just makes me so angry. We have a convicted murderer in Florida who gets freed. He's on parole. And while he's on parole, police say that he commits murder again. It is the worst of worst situations. Well, and I think the reason that it is um, so it's so hurtful and it's so shocking is that these are preventable. And these these stories are preventable. And um, there are people that are supposed to have eyes on him at all time. When someone's on parole, they are supposed to be in prison without the walls. And so how does this happen? I don't know. I don't know. Let's get into this case because it's and it's also and he was the subject of a lot of outrage. Remember, he has killed before. So there are there's another mother. There are at least two mothers out there right now in Florida outraged by this. And I'll give you one better. He is the reason that. Florida changed its law regarding parole. He is the reason. So the fact that that the poster child for longer prison sentences, no early release, gets out on an early release and kills somebody, everybody should be outraged. Oh, just sickening. All right, let's get into the details of this case. 33-year-old Erica Verdesia was found dead in a canal near Fort Lauderdale last weekend. Erica's family had had reported her missing on September 27th, three days after she left the house and was last seen by family. Okay, the last day that Erica was last seen was September 24th. These dates are going to be very, very important because... The next day, so she's last seen the 24th, the very next day on the 25th, remember, she's not been reported missing yet, police pull over a truck at 2.15 in the morning in Sunrise, Florida. Erica is a passenger in this truck, and she is alive, according to police. Police say there are no signs of distress, according to reports, but they have not revealed why the cops made the stop in the first place which is always, to me, the most interesting. I agree. Right? But who is driving the truck is very fascinating. And police kind of know this guy. He is 54-year-old Eric Pearson. He is a convicted killer who is out on parole. Can you believe this? She disappears on the 24th, the 25th. The cops pull over this truck. She is alive and she is with the man who will ultimately be charged with killing her. Oh, my God. It could have been such an intervention. It could have saved her life. It could have. But here's the problem. We've got to stop at this for a minute. okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because I I sort of when I think about this, I I I think about the um, Gabby Petito case and I think about Brian Laundrie and. Mm Um, you know, should the police have done more at that time? Until we know why they were pulled over, if it was just a traffic stop, right? If it was just a traffic stop, the police don't legally have a basis to intervene. If they're yelling at each other, if she seems to be under distress, the the problem is here that there's gotta be some reason for police to be, aside from him just being a convicted killer. And I know that sounds, um, I know that's upsetting, right? That's upsetting. 
But there are police, there are limits to what the police can do to intervene. Do I wish they had done more? Of course. Okay, so that's then really the last sighting almost that we have verification that Erica is alive. So on the 27th now, that's three days after she left the house and two days after the traffic stop, Erica's family reports her missing. Her mother went on social media and was asking friends and family of Erica, like, what do you know? Do you know anything? Where could she have gone? And one of her friends says, you know, I saw him talking I saw her talking with a grimy man at a sandwich shop. And the friend says that that grimy man told them that his name was Eric Pearson. Mom, Erica's mom, Googles Eric Pearson, sees his murderous history, his face, and she freaks out and she calls the cops. Wait, Anna, Anna, as a mom... Can you imagine how chilling that moment is? Can you, I, I can't even in my wildest nightmares, imagine what it's like when she go, puts his name in that Google search and what comes up. It's Here. like coming home and finding Ted Bundy in the yeah. living room, yeah. Yeah. right with your daughter. Yeah, horrific, horrific. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. So she calls the cops. Now, I, I wanna give the history of Eric Pearson before we get to the next thing so you can understand the seriousness and the urgency involved with locating him after someone has said that's who she was with and the woman is missing, right? So 54-year-old Eric Pearson served 27 years of a 40-year murder sentence. He was released last September, September of 2020. He was charged with murdering a 17-year-old woman in 1993. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for beating and strangulation. That's how he killed her. 17-year-old Christina Whitaker was the victim. But before this case, Allison, in 1985, Eric Pearson broke into a home and slit the throat of a woman. He served four years of an 18-year sentence for attempted murder and then paroled. All right. So, so he... Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about that. Okay, let, mm-hmm. let's talk about that. But for the grace of God, because it wasn't because Eric Pearson didn't want to kill her, but for the grace of God, she lived. Okay, she lived. But he did everything in his darndest to kill her. Yep. So the fact that he only served four years of that sentence... Um, it shows a total break, a total breakdown of the criminal justice system, a total breakdown. And the results, the resulting effects were that two innocent women have are dead. Yes. Now two are dead and one was seriously injured. Yeah. I mean, but, but four years of an eight, I don't care that it was in 1985. I, I don't care about that. Because even then, trying your very hardest to kill somebody is worth more than four years in prison. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So now you have this man's history. Attempts to kill a woman, goes to prison, doesn't, but does not succeed. Second attempt, he does kill a woman, goes to prison, gets out early, and now he's been charged with killing a third woman. Okay. A third woman is now dead. All right. So back to Erica's case here. On the morning of the murder, 
I, I don't understand the significance of this yet. Police have not completely flushed it out for us. At 3.46 a.m., Erica receives a phone call that lasts two minutes, but there are no further calls or texts in or out. And so I think police are placing her death at around this time period because there's no more activity. And then um, at least that's what Sunrise police are saying. Now, on October 4th, that's a Monday, Sunrise police detectives go to visit Eric Pearson. Remember, Erica has not been found dead yet, okay? She's missing. She's missing. His name has come up. They've probably now figured out that they did a police stop, and the mother says that Erica was last seen with him. Police go to visit Eric Pearson in his apartment in Davie, Florida. He apparently lives with his mother. So that's about eight to 10 miles from sunrise. Pearson says that after the police stop on the 25th, so obviously, right, cops already know about this, that he stopped to get gas, right? And he says that Erica walked away to go to a fast food restaurant, and that's the last time that he saw her. How many times do we hear that story, Allison? That's oh, the last time I saw her. You know, I, she just left. I, I don't know. Just left. Always leaves. Oh, yeah, just middle gone. of the night. You don't follow up. You don't. No, gone. No, just Gone, gone. So strange, but goodbye. Yeah, you know, these things happen. So surveillance video shows the two of them together at the gas station before this traffic stop as well. Okay, so now we know we have this area. So that was October 4th. Four days later on Friday, October 8th, detectives question Pearson again. He gives police permission to search his truck and police find blood in the rear passenger compartment. What a surprise. That night, that night, here's when it gets really weird again. Eric Pearson's girlfriend calls police and she says, he's been acting really strangely. Wait a minute. Really? Can I, can I, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Who's dating this man? Who is voluntarily <laughs> dating this man? I don't know. I don't know. Anna. What? He's horrible. I know. I mean, most women that date convicted serial killers, they do it because the person's behind bars. So there's really no threat that they're ever getting out and they can be pen fouls and they don't really have to commit to the person and they can love them from afar. You do know that, right? I mean, that's all. Yeah, but we don't know what Erica knew. Erica probably had no idea that this guy was a convicted murderer when she got in his truck. I'm talking about the girlfriend. Well, I know. Yeah, she probably does know. I would think by now. But maybe she didn't. Oh, God. I know. On parole. I'm going to stop defending her there. But she does do. She does help because we got to give the girlfriend a little bit of credit here. She calls police. She says he's acting strangely. Maybe she was afraid she'd be implicated if she didn't call the cops, right? She says that he's been staring at the canal behind her mobile home, repeatedly saying, damn, that stinks. Now think the about it. Had she, she do, The least she could do is call the police. I mean, yes. I am not giving her a medal i'm not giving her no i am no she's getting nothing but but had she not done that because she said she told she says the girlfriend says he alleged killer here 
told her if they don't find a body, they don't have a case. So between him standing there, staring at at the canal, saying these horrible things that her body's starting to stink. So clearly, you know, so she calls police, which really helps tremendously to help locate our our victim here. October 16th. So so really, you know, almost a week later at 1.47 a.m., the dive team finally finds Erica's body in the canal behind Pearson's girlfriend's mobile home in Davie, Florida. And then police notify Erica's family that a body has been found. And a few hours later, they make the confirmation that it is indeed Erica. Eric Pearson allegedly confesses to police allegedly says that he killed Erica on September 25th. And this is really gruesome. Allison, he tells police that he stabbed Erica four times with a screwdriver, twice in the neck, and then once in each eye. Who does that? The worst of the worst, a truly evil, horrific, horrible human being who loves the thrill of it. I mean, you understand that this is not his first rodeo here. I mean, he's a killing machine. He is a killing machine. He's already killed. And by the way, let me me say this to you. I've covered serial killers. You've covered serial killers. These are only the crimes we know about, Anna. These are only the crimes we know about. So when he gets charged and he only does four years, um, he gets out. There's a bunch of time before the next crime. Yeah. I just, I don't think that this is his entire rap sheet, frankly. It's very possible. I mean, I think if I were the police or at least like state investigators in Florida, I'd be looking at every missing woman in this area. With and the most any- horrific, With the most horrific mode of death, let me tell you, because this man mm-hmm. um, is not content unless it's absolutely gruesome and awful and as but he uses all these different like the one where he uh pleaded the second degree to that was strangulation and beating this is stabbing with a screwdriver and stabbing her eyes out so he doesn't use a consistent method which i find a little odd if you're going to call him a serial killer they generally tend to use the same mo but nonetheless he's disgusting right he's disgusting he's a convicted killer and now he's charged with yet another one So Erica was a 33-year-old mother, a single mom. She leaves behind a six-year-old daughter. Her family, her mother, they are outraged. They want to know why this man was out. They want to know why, why their precious Erica had to die because of the justice system here and the lack of justice. So I don't know. Oh, and the other thing is his, his final say even though he allegedly admits is that he said somehow this was all part of self-defense. Yeah, no, one, break. No, no one's going to buy it. No, no one's no. going to buy it. But I do want to explain something to the listener. It's so important. So even though they changed the law, right? They changed the law of, as the result of his, of his second conviction. Many times the person has to be on notice of what the law is. So when they change a law, they can't retroactively apply that, meaning right. if you commit a crime, Anna, and you're sentenced to one year and you have been sentenced for that, that offense, 
And afterward, the legislature says, you know what, these crimes are actually punishable by three years. They're they're so serious, they need to be punished by three years. They can't come back and say, you know what, Anna, now we're giving you three. So the reason he was out is because the even though the law had changed, it didn't apply to him. But I but I am going to say a couple things. As a defense attorney in Los Angeles, um, I deal with a lot of people who are released on parole and um, they're watched like a hawk. If it is a crime like this, if it is a murder case, if it is some kind of sexually violent crime, they are really monitored. So I those are the tough questions that I want answered. I want to know, was he under electronic monitoring? Did he have a curfew? Because they're out in the middle of the night. And when in Los Angeles on these types of cases, you have to be home for the majority of the, you're not out at night. You're not out at night. You're not allowed to leave a specific area and you're, it goes off. I mean, when I was reading this, the, the, uh, the, the structures that are in place, right, that for um, convicted people on parole. And also they have something called the uh, Sexually Violent Predator Action, which is a civil action in California that even once you're released, they can have a civil hearing to commit you even longer if they believe you still pose a danger. Well, perhaps Florida should consider that, especially in this case. Well, we're going to watch this to see what happens. Um, all I, I guess all we can hope for is that he goes to prison for the rest of his life and never, ever, ever gets out. I can't imagine what parole board will ever release this man. It's awful. Just shocking. Sad. And I'm going to leave it with this. Preventable. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on our social media. And our producer, Owen Michael, is here with all that you are talking about. Hey, Owen. I've got an Alabama man story this week. Uh, Police in Alabama said less than two hours after a man arrested for breaking into a car and stealing property, he bailed out of jail. He allegedly stole a car again. (laughs) Two hours after that, uh, police got a report of a break-in at a concession stand at the Pleasant Grove Athletic Complex in the Birmingham area. Officers responding found the suspect asleep in the press box of the complex. He was laying in a pile of chicken fingers, chips, candy, and methamphetamine. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I didn't see that coming. (laughs) Wait an assortment. The suspect was transported back to the Jefferson County Jail, the same jail where he had bailed out uh, just hours earlier. So uh, justice served there, maybe, allegedly. Uh, Robert E. says, the great chicken meth caper. Uh, Adam H. says, which combo meal number is this? (laughs) That's great. Exotic. Uh, Jeremy W. said, uh, ain't no way y'all caught him sleeping. So uh, Jeremy doesn't... uh, leave the police report there i mean if the man was on methamphetamine uh maybe he wasn't sleeping who knows christina O says uh looks like he's awake now yes that will yes. Uh, keep I you awake, awake being behind bars mm-hmm. for sure wow yeah uh, what, we do cover i see a, a pattern of, yeah right? we, we do cover a lot of meth stories um i would advise people to stay off meth and they can stay out of our uh, comment section here because uh, it's just uh, there's no nothing good about it uh, no good could come of it no, no. I think it's, I mean, my favorite was what combo was that? That's funny. <laughs> There's a marketing branding opportunity out there for the right uh, entrepreneur in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I love it. 
Too much. Owen, as always, thank you. And we will see you next week. See you next week. Well, that is our program for today. I think we probably ran over Allison. We were chatting an awful lot. <laughs> you know, I, I get I, I get as excited about the as you do. I, I get excited about these stories and, and I want to always have a real dialogue about them. I mean, like I said at the beginning, the, the, the headlines just don't do these cases justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I also love, as you know, is we have a really interactive group of people on YouTube. Our listeners and watchers really, really like to comment. They complain. Uh, Sometimes they throw in theories. Uh, But it's a great interactive group of people. And I always appreciate the comments. So I can't wait to hear what everyone has to say about our cases this week. So, Allison, if someone needs a defense attorney in Los Angeles or wants to follow you on social media, where can people find you? Thank you. So I am a criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles. It is um, allisontreasallaw.com. I am the legal expert for KTLA. Uh, which is a local news station, and I am the legal expert for Access Hollywood. So please check out those clips. And if you need legal defense, please give me a call. Absolutely. And you can always find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. You can catch up on all of our episodes of the podcast, either audio or YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find us. Check out our YouTube channel, subscribe. Also subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.